I'm Evelyn Glennie, and you're listening to the Evelyn Glennie Podcast. My special guest today is the brilliant film and TV composer Debbie Wiseman. Debbie has composed such a diverse range of music for the media and concert platform, and I'm delighted to say she's even composed a piece called Party Games for Me. So let's get listening. It's a lovely place to be in an Evelyn Glennie world. Oh, that's <laughs> gorgeous. That, well, there, there are one or two things to look at for sure. Mm. But so, you know, when you are travelling around or you're just people watching or sitting in a cafe or something like that, what is the sense that in your mind is foremost? Or do, do, you, do you think, oh, yes, I'm a really good listener, you know, I pick up on things, or, oh, that's a nice combination of sounds, that bird and that lorry or whatever it is. Yeah, it's, you so, just simply... it's so interesting. And I know because I've heard you speak about this, that you take um, sound as everything, listening as everything, birdsong, waves, rain, whatever. It's all sounds that we can't shut off. These are sounds that happen in our everyday life. Now, when I go about my my work when I'm working at the piano and I'm composing the only thing I'm interested in is what's in front of me musically working out how the melody should be shaped or the harmony and often I'm working with picture if I'm writing for a film or a television series so I'm looking at the picture and I'm finding silence maybe in the picture or mood or atmosphere or drama, tension, whatever that might be. And I'm looking for that and I'm trying to recreate that or trying to give a sense of that musically. Sometimes it's going against the pictures, sometimes it's going with them. Um, but there's a very definite workspace where I'm concentrating on what's in front of me and I have mm. to be completely focused on that. So all other sounds, exterior sounds like um, rain or... Um, birds chirping in the trees or sometimes there might be somebody in the distance which I find quite quite annoying hedge trimming (laughs) (laughs) it's quite a lot of hedge trimming going on Mm. so there's all that um but I, I I I tune that out and I concentrate exclusively on what's going on in my head and what's musically happening yeah it's interesting really I mean when you start well first of all how did you get into composing how did I get into yes. composing? Well, As a youngster, what was your musical experiences? Well, I started um, with a very classical training. So I, I learnt at school the piano and then uh, went from there as a Saturday junior to Trinity College and went to Guildhall and studied um, full-time at Guildhall with Buxton Orr, who was mm. my composition teacher, mm. who was Scottish. You probably yes. Know. Lovely, lovely man and very, very good composition teacher. And he gave me the skills because when I started, all I knew was that I wanted to be a composer. I knew that I wanted to write. I had more, I got more pleasure out of coming up with my own tunes and my own melodies and harmonies and shapes, musical shapes, than I did from playing and Mm. learning the repertoire. Although I loved um, being a pianist and I still do play Mm. um, on sessions and things like that. But I really love the idea of creating something from scratch coming up with a tune and he when I started learning with him he he just managed to help me um, learn about orchestration he's very pedantic about writing in the score what you want to be performed and he would say to me that 
if you write, you know, if you just write a series of notes without any phrasing or dynamics and give it to a musician, what you'll get is a bland series of notes performed. That's what you'll get. You know, it'll go from A to B and that's that. But what you want is to infuse those series of notes with dynamics and mm. phrasing and accents and give it shape so that the musician looks at it and plays and responds to that and then you get a performance. Mm. And then you can shape that performance. So if ever I took in anything to him for him to look at that didn't have phrasing, didn't have dynamics, it was just as he would get very cross and he would get his red pen out and either strike it out or he'll put his own little dots and dashes yeah. over the top. He was very keen to do that. And so I suppose, you know, the, the art of orchestration, the art of learning how to write for instruments, he would suggest playing a, a scale on every single instrument of the orchestra so that you learn how to write for that instrument. You learn yes. how to write for a flute, how to write for a clarinet, yeah, yeah. Um, which I did. And he he understood that, you know, really when you write for an instrument, you have to write for where it sounds best. Mm -hmm. And he would encourage me not to write something crazy out of register that that, that nobody's going to be able to play, that's going to struggle, they're going to struggle with, and it's going to sound um, crazy. Write something that works for the instrument primarily. Mm -hmm. Then you can start perhaps experimenting mm -hmm. afterwards. But primarily, to, to get your composition skills honed, learn how to write really well for that instrument. So did you then... In, in those early years, have musicians play your pieces so that you could actually digest how they were sounding? Or was this something that you internally felt and you worked with with your teacher? You, you know what I mean? Because sometimes it's, it's one thing looking at the notation. Yes. But not everybody can really sense how those elements come together. No, you're right. And in those days, unlike it is now where you've got samples and keyboards and synthesizers, where now I preview everything and mock up, as they call it, for for people to hear. When I was starting out, that, that technology didn't really exist. Mm. So I used to play the scores to directors when I was starting out writing for, for films and TV, just at the piano and say, this is where the brass is going to come in, this is where the percussion's going to be, listen to this tune, that's going to be on the strings, and they would have to imagine it, which was almost impossible for somebody who isn't musical. Mm. I could imagine it in my head, but yes, I did have people play through the scores, mm. and at Guildhall, certainly, part of the composition course was to have your music performed by the students there. Mm. And there was a recording studio, and I'd go in and record some of my choral music. In fact, I, you know, they had it was a great choir there, and I, I did quite a lot of writing for them. And one of the first jobs I got was because on my showreel, which I had sent out to loads and loads of directors and producers when I'd left college, on there was one piece, which was a choral piece, and he was looking for something choral for his film. And he heard it and invited me in for a meeting and just gave me a chance, and that was how I got my first proper composing yeah. commission. And it's quite, it feels quite a lonely life, you know. I mean, I've worked with so many composers over the years, and, and you know... They all have different ways of working. And I find as the performer of their pieces that you really have to go with how the composer functions. You know, you yeah. can't say you must compose like this or like that or you can't force something. It's quite an interesting kind of dynamic, really. And there is that immense respect because ultimately the idea or sound comes from the composer you know, yes. it can be a collaborative effort, but at the end of the day, it's the composer who has to pop those dots on the page, <laughs> you know, for the performer then to 
create that sound story. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I like writing for a performer that I know, and I know I have written for you. I had the, mm. you know, the great privilege of writing for your 50th birthday and writing that little piece for you. And I, as I was doing it, I imagined you playing it. Uh-huh. And I imagine how you might play it. And I know you're playing very well. And obviously know how you um, sound, because I've heard you <laughs> on various different... Um, you know, instruments. And so I imagine that. And I do that with most performers. If I'm writing for a flute, I like to know the the, the flautist that I'm going to use, Mm. if possible, so that I can write for them and I know how Mm. they're going to sound. And then it does, as you say, become a collaboration. And for me, until a performer takes takes control of the, the music, and plays, you know, it's just little black dots on a stave. They, they're meaningless without a performer um, grabbing hold of those notes, making them their own, infusing them with their own personality, mm. giving it um, giving it their interpretation. Mm. And it, it's so interesting working with lots of different instrumentalists. As I, I mean, I have a great, you know, job in that I can go in and I record my music often very quickly after I've written it, certainly for a film. And you... Sometimes you work with lots and lots of different um, woodwind players, brass players, string players. Mm. And it's so interesting how differently they can interpret your Mm. music. Um, All Mm. great musicians, you know, all right at the top of their game. Mm. But there's a difference in how it ends up sounding depending on the performer. Yes. Are you one of those composers that changes things afterwards? I mean, I remember when the late uh, Christopher Rouse, who sadly passed away a few few months ago when he wrote his percussion concerto and he, he gave me the music. We had a few initial meetings and he came to a few concerts in the States and um, and once we agreed on the idea, um, because it was based on Wagner's ring cycle, so Albrecht, you know, the little yeah. sort of imp, as it were, where no one knew what happened to him at the end yeah, of the yeah. great lock, you know, <laughs> opera cycle. And uh, so he thought, oh, well, I'll pop Albrecht into a percussion concerto, you know. Yeah. And uh, But anyway, at the end, he just basically gave me the music and he said, there you go. And he he didn't need to and I didn't want for anything to be changed but nevertheless he made it quite clear that that is that and then other composers you know I mean I've had uh, the likes of Michael Doherty change his whole second movement of his first percussion concerto after the premiere um, because he he you know felt oh no maybe we can try this or try that and yes. it's really interesting yes. I mean I remember how Michael bought I think a pair of bongos or something and he practically slept with them because he wanted to to know all the ins and outs of bongo playing and <laughs> and so every composer is different yes. you know John Crigliano was he actually changed the title of his percussion concerto and after every performance we gave you know there's always something a, a tiny little detail that he would pick out and want and me to, to just change it well just to, to attend to it and to sometimes change sometimes you know just adapt or whatever it is and and was that was that disturbing for you because you obviously learnt it in a particular way and then you have to go back and look at that passage yeah. and relearn it well yes and no i think that it's i quite like the feeling that things don't stand still i quite like being pushed yes. as a player um i quite like that period of experimentation when something is so new you know well 
unless you try it, you don't know. Um, and I'm also aware that um, in all of those sort of cases with, with Christopher Rice and Michael Doherty and, and John Quigliano, that they all wrote for big percussion setups. Yes. So it meant that when you were borrowing instruments at different places, you know, you could line up 10 tam-tams or gongs or whatever, and they would all be quite different. They would all speak differently. And I think that was more the case with John's piece, you know. So he had worked closely with uh, students at the Juilliard during his writing process. So he got used to the sound of the instruments there. But of course, when you you know, venture into someone else's collection of instruments, they're they're very different yes. again. Yeah. It's a very different experience it, it being in really the studio. Is. Everything's under the microscope. Everything is looked at in such great detail. Mm. Every note is 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 judged. I often feel very sorry for studio musicians because it's quite a brutal world. You know, yes. I, I give them the score um, for whatever it is that, that we're recording on that day. They have to sight read it first time. Oh play it right first time oh my lord you know otherwise they get strange looks from everybody else that's sitting next to them saying they're not up to it really Mm. and um they have to you know they have to be at the top of their game yeah yeah constantly there's Mm. no room for error really Mm. tuning reading Mm. um performance everything has Mm. to be completely perfect each time and it is a huge it is is, big demands on studio musicians they're very you know under respected yes uh, yes i understand that i mean do you find that the 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 job of a composer has changed because of technology i mean you mentioned that you played the piano yes. and you compose from the piano yeah and but now with what is available through technology and that sometimes you don't even have to play an instrument you know that the, the whole aspect of sound design is 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 really an important part of the music business now yeah you know has that affected what you do do you embrace that um it's a really interesting Point because there are good parts to that, to the technology, and not so good parts. The good parts are that it allows me to try everything out before I get in the studio. I can explore exactly how the score is going to sound. I can preview everything to um, whoever's commissioned the, the project, whether it's um, a, a string quartet or whether it's a director or a, a producer. Um, so everything can be very... Um, worked out in advance and you know what you're going to get so there's very little surprise when you go Mm. into the studio because everything's been previewed the downside is that that takes a lot of time all the playing in and sorting it out and demoing and previewing and it's quite a time-consuming process so the actual act of writing the music might take however long it might take a week or a couple of weeks but then you've got to demo it all and get it all ready Um, and it does in some ways, um, you lose a little bit of spontaneity from when you actually hear it for the first time in the studio and everybody listens to the music for the first time. That moment, that magical moment where everybody hears it for the first time has gone up to a point because you've already heard it with samples and keyboards and synthesised versions of the sounds. So, it, it, But, you know, of course technology is helpful. Of course it is. And, and it makes everything generally quicker. Not always, but generally quicker. Mm. Speeds up the process. Yes, and it's 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 quite you know to write for media is stressful. Yes, actually because of time or because of 
different decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Deadlines. And, lots and of people have to, have to like your music, lots of people to please. It's oh. not just you delivering at the end. You have to collaborate with a director, a producer, an editor, sometimes even a writer. Um, and everybody has to have a an input. Mm-hmm. So you're you're part of a team. Whereas when you're writing for the concert hall and say you're writing for an orchestra, or, you know, uh, uh, say you're writing for a string quartet, the first time anybody will hear your music is when you deliver it on the stand for the first rehearsal. There's no input beforehand. How does that feel? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, it's a very different experience. Mm-hmm. I actually like both. I like I like both. I like having because otherwise, as you said at the start, it can be quite a lonely job. Mm. If you're, it's just you and your manuscript paper and you're just working away and, and scribbling away at the piano, it can be quite a lonely job. I do like the collaboration. At times, of course, there are tricky decisions to make and, and you're not always going to be um, successful in delivering what the director wants. There will be moments when they say to you, I don't think it works, mm-hmm. you know, and I've learned now over the years, you know, when somebody said that to me in the past, I'd get very upset and get really kind of despondent, mm. you know, oh my gosh, I've written all this music and now it doesn't work and I've got to start again. But now when somebody says, I'm not sure it's working, I'm much better at just starting again. Just yeah, interesting. Just yeah. start yeah. again because really um, that's the only way to achieve what you've got to achieve mm, mm. so really it's hard, that, but you have to do it yeah yeah that, that's quite a dis- discipline I mean too because with all of the emotions that you have to go through you know if somebody's saying well that's not right and you don't really know why it may not be working, no and they know? can't always articulate why it's not right yep, sometimes yep. it's just not what they had in mind yeah. for their particular mm. project and you have to accept that and just start again. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes it's, you know, I've written things three, four, five times sometimes Gosh. before coming up with a theme that yeah. people like. Um, and the other four themes that I might have written just just get put in the bin. Uh-huh, there's really? no yeah there's no emotion attached to them at all anymore well, that's just literally right yeah. they didn't work they're gone wow. um i never go back to anything ever. ah really no i was going to ask if you you know no. tinker at things from years gone by or no because it was written for that particular thing and people always yeah. say to me well you've got a bottom drawer you know yeah. that you and somebody <laughs> wants something oh i know there was that thing that didn't you know yeah. No, it's never worked for me because yeah. everything I write is always very specific to the project. Therefore, yes. it has a particular mood. And the next project's different. So something that I would have written for a costume drama or, or you know, whatever, period piece wouldn't necessarily work or wouldn't work for a very contemporary, modern action yeah. thriller or whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah. So even with the finished product and you see the picture, the music and all of the elements together, are you still... That critical Debbie, <laughs> you know, yes. of your of your work. Oh yes, yeah. yeah. I think I'm sure it's the same with you. I've, yeah. You know, as a musician, um, whether you're a composer, a musician, a performer, mm. we're trained only to look at what's wrong. I mean, it's quite yeah, shocking, it's really. You know, yep. your yep. teacher usually only tells you, "Okay, that's great, but now this is what yeah. you're doing wrong." <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. To, to write a melody is one of the hardest things. Yes, it is. Really? One that hasn't been written before, one that sounds fresh and original, one that works, one that's memorable. And people always say, especially on, on film projects, you know, oh, I want something really memorable that people are going to come out humming or they see a television series, you know, I want something that people are going to 
when they're in the kitchen and they hear it and they want to remember it. And of course, it's lovely to say those things, very hard to execute something. It is, yes. I remember one project whereby um, uh, the director had a particular theme of an already existing melody in his mind and and said it's 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 like that i would like it like that oh, you know what i mean oh and that's very hard that's, to do that's terrible well this whole thing of temp tracking where they you know the whole, what they do now in films is they put on a temp track which is a temporary track yeah. um in order that because the composer hasn't had time to get going yet but they're editing away and cutting the film and assembling it and they need music to help them cut and especially if it's an action thing and they want lots of car chases and you need music to give it the energy and and uh, the rhythm so they lay on something from gladiator or whatever you know and put it on and then they they get very used to it yes absolutely and they say yes. to you oh because you know music especially with repetition mm. gets into your head as we all know um the more you hear it the more you like it, it becomes part of the scene almost as much as the lighting or the costumes yes. or whatever and so they start getting really into it and then they say to the composer oh, i really like this music you know it's gladiator and they can probably only afford you know five players and a harmonica or something but they want gladiator you <laughs> yeah. know the hundred piece orchestra and something yeah. but they say, i really like this and and can you do something that, that has the same kind of energy and the same kind of whatever you do it will never be that no. unless you copy it and then absolutely. you get sued so you can't yeah, do that absolutely. So, but they all these all these problems yeah. crop up do you have a preference as regards to the medium that you write for? You know, whether it's for television, films? Not really, no. I mean, no. I love writing to picture. I love having the inspiration of something. Yeah. That, you know, you get this wonderful gift of a picture mm. to write to and um, something to immediately inspire, which I love. Mm. Um, but, you know, I like, I like a blank piece of manuscript paper. I'm not sort of worried about that. I do enjoy that. And being able to come up with something and create the own, my own pictures in my head and not have to um, fit anything. You know, the thing mm. about film and TV is you're fitting your music to a particular existing uh, story. Whereas you can write your own story when you, when you mm. have a blank page. Mm. Do you have a routine when you, when you write music? You know, are you pretty... Not really. No, I know some composers that do a kind of nine to five thing, but that, that's not me at all I do write all kinds of odd times of day it goes on sometimes first thing in the morning I, I get up all very late at night there's no real routine it's just what feels right yeah, for the project yeah. and also deadlines are you know looming absolutely, quite often absolutely. and that you have to deliver yeah. and you mustn't ever miss a deadline as a composer because especially on a film you then throw everything out you know you then throw the post-production out of out of kilter and everybody would get very very um disappointed and mm, mm. it costs a lot of money as well so you must deliver on time so often you know i have to tuck myself away for the two three weeks leading up to a deadline and 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 you know just say sorry to a lot of people can't do this can't do that sorry yes. sorry sorry just in order to to reach that deadline and mm. that that's hard sometimes mm. and but how, you have to do it absolutely and and i mean how could you you know encourage a, a youngster who's interested in this line of of the music business to deal with deadlines to deal with the stress that comes with that because you know i have been there and i have um Obviously, not to the extent of if if your work, but you but know, no, you have it, composed, it's, of course. it's it is quite uh, 
it's like a whole roller coaster of emotions really and you know for young people who are interested in this you know what could they do um, as part of their course to to deal with that you know say right we want this by tomorrow night or something yeah well my my composition you know teacher Buxton used to say write something every day even if it's rubbish and you throw it out afterwards write something every day Mm. because you'll always have lots of ideas and you'll never be sort of get composer's block you know you'll never Mm. be you'll never be short of ideas if you write something every day so I would definitely suggest doing that making sure that there's lots of music written every day so that your compositional juices are flowing all the time and then when somebody says to you I I need something by Friday which they often do um, you don't go in a panic you think okay I can I can write something it may not be the best piece of music I've ever written Mm. but I can get you something by Friday Mm. and it's Mm. important that you you do deliver it's Mm. very very important perhaps Mm. the most important thing actually yeah interesting do you use improvisation as a source of curiosity discovery yeah Um, I think it's all a little bit um improvised to start with in in other words you know I sit at the piano and I look at the picture or I decide on what what I need to write in that day in that Mm -hmm. morning um and we'll improvise until something sticks and works Mm. um it's not improvisation in in the way that you know a jazz musician would improvise around a chord sequence or Mm. or anything like that but it's more trying out different ideas and I'm not really sure where it comes from and it's probably best not to analyze it too much just for fear that it might ever go away but it just usually just happens there's something that clicks and I'll Mm. say yep that that works or that's starting to work and then it might take two or three days for it to for me to be convinced that it's going to work for the film yes yeah and be brave enough to then play it to the director feeling strong enough that I think it works because there is that moment where you've written it for the first time and then the director comes over and hears it for the first time Mm -hmm. and of course however much you like it or think it's great there is that terrible feeling they're not going to like it Mm -hmm. and what are they going to say and that moment never leaves you that moment of thinking (gasps) you know when you play somebody something for the first time absolutely it's interesting isn't it so no matter how experienced you you are there's always those feelings that creep in, you know. Of, of Definitely, it doesn't, no, really. it absolutely doesn't matter how yeah. experienced you are. You never get rid of that because yeah. it's, it's you're showing something to somebody that you've just written that you hope works. If they say they don't like it, you have to find another route in, you have to try mm. and, you know, try and explore what it is that they're looking for. And it's sometimes very hard to get inside the head of a director. They might have an idea. Mm. They might have been listening to Gladiator for three weeks and have that. Or they might have no ideas and want something, but still know they will will absolutely know when it's right and tell you. And And if they don't think it's right, then you've got to... You know, find another way. Yeah, and please. I suppose the language used to dis- to for them to describe what they're after is not always musical language. No, you know the, exactly. The, the I mean, terms. when I write a piece, you know, as I have done for you, when I give it to a performer who's hugely experienced and talented, and they take it, and you talk in a musical language to each other, and you can explore it together because you 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 understand what is required. When you're working with a director or a producer that doesn't understand the language of music they love music and they want to get the best music they possibly can for their film you have to find another way of working with them Mm. and I usually just keep it visual because they're visual people and they love um, 
being able to create something that creates emotion on the screen that you can see. So I use those sort of terms, you know, about making it look very bright or making it sound bright or making it, you know, using visual terms to try and get get them to describe mm. what they want. Some directors are incredibly good at talking about music, even though they don't play an instrument or ever have it learned. But they know, they love music and they know what to what to say mm. and others find it harder but it's your job as a composer to navigate around all these different mm. issues that, that might come your way interesting and I mean you do a lot of conducting as well I mean do you listen to your music differently as a conductor you know being there in front I mean you're not exactly the the largest person on the planet <laughs> no. I have to say you're the, possibly the most colourful one oh. but <laughs> Oh, you're think, sitting there wearing a beautiful red jacket and a black oh, hat and a very lovely smile and oh, all of that. But, you know, do you experience, do you listen, do you do you find things in your music that perhaps you hadn't noticed before, you know, when you're busy composing it, to then having that as a whole, but you're actually in control of things like balance or texture or placement of sound and mm, so on? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it does... Um, take on a life of its own when it's performed and you're standing on the podium and you're conducting it I started conducting because when I when I was starting out there wouldn't have been a budget to hire a conductor as well as a composer you know so I had to do it and I'm very pleased I did have to do it because I love conducting I love working with musicians I think musicians are are wonderful I love being able to be at the center of the performance if you like not not in a sort of egotistical way that I'm you know I'm in command but the fact that I know the music better than anyone I've written this yes. <laughs> and so I don't have to describe what I need to a t- conductor mm. I don't have to translate what a director's saying to me there's no third person party involved I can get straight to it it speeds things up and I love that part of it it's my treat at the end of it you know because I sat at the piano scribbling away for for weeks on end um, doing the orchestrations big you know a lot of work my treat at the end is going into the studio and hearing it performed for the first time by world-class musicians having it played back yes there will be times when I want to change things or the director may want to change things when he hears it performed properly. But that's all part of the, the enjoyment of mm. hearing it for Absolutely. the first time. And, Amazing. And, you know, there's nothing, however good samples are, and however and they are quite good now, um, nothing will beat the sound of a performer breathing life into your music, playing it back to you, giving you their interpretation, their own individual personality attached to what you've written Mm. makes it very, very special. And when you've got world-class performers playing your music, it's such a thrill. Mm. And that thrill never, never leaves. It's Mm. just the most wonderful moment of the whole process. And I suppose, you know, that word breathing or to breathe, you know, that's a thing that you don't get through a synthesizer, you know, that's kind of... You know, you can see see the movement of that and feel the movement of that. But it's interesting because do you remember when we um, we worked together on the water phone? Mm. And the water phone is quite a, a a common instrument as regards to you know people will have heard perhaps a water phone yes. but not realised what it what is. It is. No, but that's cool. definitely an instrument that you know you cannot really be replicated through a synthesizer I mean it's just so extraordinary yes but um I did ask if you'd write a waterfall concerto 
to remember. That's true. It's definitely that would be amazing, wouldn't yeah, it? That would be I wonderful. Know. But it's a gorgeous thing. You're right. I mean, all these instruments that we're surrounded by in your incredible place here are all um, not really replicable. Yes, you can get close to the sound on a mm. sample. Of course, you can. A drum mm. kit, you can get close. Mm. But it's not going to be the same as hearing you play it with everything that you put into a performance, the mm. level of dynamics, the level of um, intricacy and skill and passion that you put into your performance. You can never replicate with a sample mm. thank goodness because yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we'd all be yeah. out of a job wouldn't we well and that's true I suppose it's the resonance yes that's that's special you know the, the journey of the sound that you that you can really pay attention to in a live situation yes. you know it's the breathing and that resonance that it's so individual to all of us you know so someone sitting in the front row will have a different feeling of that resonance to someone sitting in the balcony or something when you're performing do you does that concern you that there are going to be people very close to you having a very different experience to people very far away there's nothing i can do about it no at the end of the day you know you i mean i remember playing um, James McMillan's Veni Veni Emanuel in Tel Aviv many years ago and of course to have a percussion concerto played there you know it was very new it was it was really new and uh, and I remember uh, starting the piece which starts with two tam-tams really loudly right over in the cello section at the front and honestly, the front row just, you, you know, they nearly hit the ceiling because <laughs> it was such a shock to them. Yes. And then the drums were all on the violin side. And, you know, one lady was putting her, her fingers to her ears because it was just a combination of sounds that was so unlikely and, and so uh, unusual, shall we say, yes. you know, in yeah. their experience of concert going. So, um, but you knew that, yes, that might be pretty hefty for folk in the front row or two but for those you know further back everything would iron itself out you know and and things would be would be more in balance but you're you're always really going to have that to an extent it's almost like watching a uh, parts of a, a piano concerto where in the tutti sections you know you often lose the pianist you know yes. they get all mixed up Wrapped with up, the, yeah. the orchestra and, and often that's the, the hardest piece the hardest part of the piece that, you know that they've yeah. been working on for, for, for ages and, yeah, and ages yeah. and, and then it's all swallowed up or something but yes. I think that's just the nature of, of sound and, yes. and but that's what live performances give because the sound is one thing, but it's that visual element, so you can see the sound. Yeah, you know, yes. so so you, you you then feel as though, well, yes, I'm hearing that because you're seeing because it. you're seeing of it, of course. You know, whereas a recording is such a different experience Absolutely. when you're hearing a recording. Um, Debbie, as well as your very lovely bright clothes, and <laughs> you, you collaborate. Well, you've collaborated with so many people, but I I like gardening. I have to say, and you did a gardening project yes. with Alan Titchmore. Yes, I did. How did that come about? Well, um, it was a lovely project, and I'm at the moment I'm Classic FM's composer in residence, and so the idea was that I would um, record an album for them. I did one previous to that called The Musical Zodiac, which was just a, a, a which was just an exploration of the 12 signs of the Zodiac um, realised musically. And then... We were chatting about what the next one could be, and Alan's their presenter, and he he um, he does a Saturday show every morning, and and 
I ended up sitting next to him at a classic FM dinner one one day, one evening, and um, I was just about thinking about what the next album should be. <laughs> and I said, you know, I should I should write you a tune one day, Alan. You know, because you've got your own show. And we laughed about it. And uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was just a throwaway comment. And he said, oh yeah, we don't really have theme tunes on classic FM for us, but that, what a good idea. And then we we sort of stayed in touch, and I started to think about the idea of writing an album about plants and flowers and he just sort of inspired. and then he he sent me some poems of his favorite plants and flowers Ooh. and he sent me a poem about cedar of lebanon and i discovered that he he wrote poetry and there were oh. these lovely charming poems coming through and and i said you know what i think this is going to work you write me some poems i'll stick them <laughs> on top of the piano and i'll see if it, i can get some music going and, and that's what happened and he sent me these lovely poems which are actually on the on the on the album um, and there's myrtle, and there's snowdrop, and there's peony, and and oh. he, he he probably sent me about thirty, and then we had thirty lovely poems, and then we had to sort of slim it down to twelve, and I chose my twelve favourites and wrote music. Do you like gardening yourself? I'm terrible gardener. Oh, I don't believe. I know I am really awful. Whenever we get anything, it's usually everybody buys us plants or something. We have great trouble actually keeping it alive. You know, I'm, I'm really, <laughs> I do bad. Really, yep. <laughs> really bad. And and um, but Alan's great, and he gave he gave we've got we've got a little trough in the middle of our house which doesn't get any light. I don't know why it was built there. The people that, that built the house before us decided it'd be a great idea to have a sort of trough for plants right in the middle of the house where it gets no light <laughs> so Alan came over and I said, I said what do we do because everything died in there you know we'd, we'd put things that didn't need a lot of light um like um mother-in-law's tongues you know and lots of succulent mm. plants which don't need very much light but they still died and he said what you need is you need some growing lights have you heard of what growing lights do you know what growing Art- lights artificial are? Light? Artific- yeah and you, so we put them up and he was absolutely right now we've got growing lights over this trough and you Green get them growing. Growing, growing growing lights yeah and they they produce light for areas where you don't get very much light on you in in the house or you oh. and you pop them over and you just pop them on a few hours a day and it, it's it boosts the amazing yeah, so it's it worked helped. Helped. You've got to be friends with Alan Titchmarsh. I know. I'd love him to come into my garden and sort it out. That's for sure. He's a lovely person, he is, isn't he? A really lovely he person. Is. And a wonderful gardener. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. So, Debbie, I've got three questions for you. Ah, just to end our conversation. Lovely. What does listening mean to you? It's such a good question, this, because it's so broad. Um, when I'm listening in a work context and I'm writing, then listening is all about finding the space for music, either in a film or a television project, finding room for it, knowing the moments where music is going to work best, listening to the the dialogue, listening to the action, and listening to the music. So there's a lot of different listening going on, because I have to not only listen to the music, but I have to listen to the whole, because it's part of a whole, it's part of a drama. But listening is so much more than that, and you know, you 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 take on board everything during the day. You know, I was as we were driving down here to your lovely place. It's raining quite hard, you know, and just mm. the sound of the rain on the on the windscreen was quite strong, mm. and um, I love that sound. I love mm. the sound of rain. Um, listening is a complete involving process for me mm. now because I am a composer. I have to listen very carefully. To, to musical sounds for most of the day and 
switching off from that can be quite hard. I don't know if you find it the same, but I do find that at night sometimes, if I've been working very late, I can't stop listening in my head oh. trying to get to sleep because the sounds are still going around in my mm. head. I don't know if you experience I, the same thing, if you're working, practicing late yes, at night. Yes, sometimes I do, but but I do like that division between now I'm playing something or working on something and I can easily then get that out of my head and the environment that I live in is peaceful and and I think that sometimes we get confused between peacefulness and silence you know and I like the feeling of peacefulness where there's very little movement um, so therefore there's very little sound to the eye and and i I really value that moment, you know, or those moments of, of peacefulness. My other question is, if you could choose five sounds to be stranded on a desert island with, what would they be and why? <laughs> so these sounds that have to be on a desert island or these sounds I could take with me from... Either, either, oh, however okay. you, you please. Okay, well, this is, this is hard because... Um, Am I allowed musical sounds or these are any not? Any sounds you wish. Oh, any sounds I wish. Well, this is very nice. Any sounds you wish. You have a free free range. Yeah. Well, if I could and I'm on the desert island, I'll definitely take some of the sounds that come with the desert island, like the sound of the waves. Mm. Very lovely. The sound of bird's song. Wonderful. Um, this, I said I like the sound of rain. Mm. I might take that. Um, gosh, I think I'd need some music with me. I'll take your water phone. Oh, thank you. I was just, I was going to suggest that if you were feeling stuck. Finally, for the fifth one, um, I, I, I love the sound of, of sort of kids, children kind of laughing and that sort of thing. I'd probably take some giggling with me. Some that, giggling. Just to cheer me up. If you had an instrument that you could choose that you've not yet composed for, what might that uh, be? Well, you're there, looking there... at me thinking water phone, aren't you? <laughs> Like theremin, have you used a theremin? I or, haven't actually you know, used a I don't theremin. any instrument or contrabassoon, or you've probably used contrabassoon. Yeah, contrabassoon. Um, um, Theorbo. I've written for Theorbo. Yes, that 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 uh, that featured on on Wolf Hall. Theorbo ah, okay. and lute, Theorbo okay. and um, it's an amazing mandolin. It is a lovely instrument. Um, I think I would like to write um, for an instrument that doesn't have a lot of repertoire, like the you know, like percussion, where there is a, a need for more repertoire. There's, you know, there's a lot of piano concertos, a lot of violin concertos. So maybe choosing an instrument that hasn't had such um, such an array of wonderful writing oh, for it. You know, the poor relation of the orchestras. Yeah. I always feel very sorry for them. They never get the tunes. You Absolutely. Know? They never get the big. They never get the big melodies. So it would be nice to write for something that 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 never gets a starring role and well, give it a starring role. Absolutely. Well, you're a star and you write very memorable melodies oh. regardless of which instrument you're writing for. Well, that waterfan concerto has got to be top of it's, the list now, well, hasn't it? I'm going to, I'm going to hold gonna, you to that. Absolutely. I'm not going to let you go. You're going to have to give me a good... I need to know a little bit more about the instrument before I can write for it properly. So I'm going to need a good long That's okay. Glenny session on Waterfern More before I can get my head round it and know what I've got to write. Well, on that note, we might have a piece of cake in order to get our head round the Waterfern. Thank you, Debbie. Oh, it's Thank a pleasure. You very Thank you much for inviting me. I would like to say a very special thank you to Audio Network for supporting my podcast. 
Thank you for listening. But before you go, I have a little question for you. Which instrument did you hear in the music Wolf Hall? Well, please share your answers with me on Twitter using the hashtag TheEdwinGlennyPodcast and I'll see you in my next one.